Hello everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Working Humans. My name is Matt Phelan. And my name is Katie Jacobs. And we are sitting in Soho on Greek Street. We're looking out on the theatre where Mary Poppins is. You, have you been to see Mary Poppins at all? Uh, I sadly have not been to see many of the fine musicals on offer in London at the moment. <laughs> um, just a reminder of, of, of why we record this podcast, which is... I just get to meet so many amazing people um, throughout my career and I, I, I felt like that was selfish and I have to share these <laughs> conversations. So I'm just going to introduce Katie in my own words because um, Katie's someone I only met um, very recently um, but I was aware of her work because I've, I've read a few of her articles which we'll get into in a bit. But um, I, don't, I haven't said this before but I don't think I've ever met someone whose brain moves so quickly. I think that's a compliment, so thank is. you. Have you had that feedback before? Um, I have had that feedback before, but it's, um, and we can maybe get onto this later, but it's part of the reason why I need to write, Yeah. because the writing is how I structure my thoughts, and it also is the only thing that kind of gets me into flow, yeah. where my brain quietens down, Brilliantly. because otherwise it's like all over the place. Yeah, I don't know why I said, I just said brilliantly, <laughs> but I was just so in- intrigued um, to get Katie on, and talk about where she works, but more importantly, we talked about her career and everything when we met up, but we kept coming back to the subject of culture. But there's no one better to introduce herself than herself. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Um, so my name is Katie. I said that already. Uh, I guess I'm a writer and commentator on the world of work. Um, and at the moment, I've kind of taken a little bit of a, a pivot and I work at the CIPD, which is the UK's professional body for um, people development. Um, my job there is working with HR leaders, so I spend all my time, like Matt, out talking to really interesting people about what I think are really interesting things, about how we kind of create workplaces that are sustainable and successful, uh, good places to work and create the kind of jobs that make people um, you know, feel at their best and are able to give at their best. Um, so the CIPD's mission is all about championing better work and working lives, and that's why I joined, because I think that's a pretty fab mission and you probably have to be a bit of a psychopath or sociopath to be (laughs) like I actively want to make people's working lives worse so I'm all on board with that Um, but my kind of first love is writing and journalism so I trained as a journalist about I've gone more than a decade ago which makes me feel really old now I say that Um, and I never really thought that I wanted that I was going to end up writing about HR and workplace stuff because when you're doing your training obviously you're not thinking oh I cannot wait to go and like work in HR magazines and things that you've never even heard of or know that exist but they always tell you when you're doing your training there's a magazine for absolutely everything and all the kind of weird and wonderful bits of business and trade. Where did you train? Uh, I trained at City University in London, so I did an undergrad first just in English, and then um, but I spent like all my time at university doing the student paper, uh, so I was like really into it, um, absolutely loved it, I loved like staying up all night to put something to press, like real real buzz, um, and I was a deputy editor of our student paper by the time I left, so then I did a postgrad in magazine journalism at City. Num- before we go on for that mm. though, what was the number one thing you learned from doing a student paper? Uh, what's number one thing I learned? Uh, well, practical things like how to teach yourself teach yourself InDesign in one session. Um, but I guess the kind of value of just chatting to people. So you a, did you have a team there? Oh yeah, well we had a big team. But when I say chatting to people. That's how you get stories. That's how you discover things. Yeah. Because otherwise you don't know what's happening. Yeah. So you know if you want to create a product that's telling people like the current stuff and the news they need to know and um, interesting features, you know you just need to get out there yeah. and kind of chat to people. But obviously I did manage. Uh, 
a team as far as you can manage a team when you're like 19. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a team, so it was kind of all that kind of working, working together, um, working in a team to just get something done. And one of the things I loved about doing a paper and then about doing magazines afterwards is that you have a very tangible output because mm-hmm. you have something you can literally hold in your hand because yeah. print is not dead yet <laughs> um so it's something you can literally hold so if you if you write something and it appears in print or digital mm. does that feel different to you yeah and actually given that i've edited two two kind of relatively large b2b magazines now um, there is a real difference when people want to be in it as well. So yeah. there's a, I think there's still a cachet to being in print. Yeah. So some publications will pay you more for being in print, kind of per word. Yeah. Um, not all of them, but some, some of them are there. And when I've worked on business magazines, a lot of people, if they're trying to sell you in an op-ed, which you wouldn't actually pay for if it's a, a kind of thought leadership piece by somebody, then they want it to appear in print and you'd have people saying, oh, I'd rather wait, I'd rather wait three months to get yeah. that into print. Wow. than I would to get it online, even though you're like, it probably reaches a, it will reach the same audience. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And do you think that's, um, I suppose there's three options to this. Do you think that's a generational thing, an experience thing, or option C that I am not intelligent enough to have discovered? Um, I think some of it is potentially generational, although I'm relatively young. Like I'm in my 30s and I still like the kind of feeling of print. Um, I think there's something around the online space because there's so much, I say like comma, like fake news, I'm not meaning like as Donald Trump says it, but I mean yeah. there's a lot of false information yeah. on the internet and it's very easy for anyone to be a journalist and to put information that might not be factually accurate yeah. out there and it's very easy to put something online because if you're doing an online piece and one of the great things about it is you can get it up immediately and then you can add to it. Yeah. So you can get something up, someone might then call you and be like, this yeah. is factually inaccurate. <laughs> so you change it, put an apology in, you right. add, you do a few more interviews, you add stuff to it. So it's kind of evolving and it grows all the time. Whereas once you put something to press, that's kind of it. Yeah. So I think the amount of work that goes into making it feel, making sure that it's kind of as accurate as it can possibly be and as yeah. kind of fulsome as it can possibly be, that you put a little bit more work into it. And I think... Um, if you look at the kind of stats around magazines for the past few years, some of the kind of really heavyweight ones, kind of The Economist, New Statesman, The Atlantic, ones like that, mm-hmm. their uh, sales figures have actually gone up again in right. print. Because I, I think people that. are so overwhelmed by the amount of information that's available on the internet that they're like, okay, I'd rather have curated yeah. selection of stuff that I feel I can trust as far as I can trust anything. Yeah. So... As an aside, that's why I think kind of magazines and print still has a little bit of a cachet. Um, and I've edited two business magazines in my career, so and why I guess I'm into this stuff is I edited HR magazine for yeah. a while, so I was on that brand for five or six years, and that's how I kind of really got into the topic. Maybe we can talk about that later. And I also edited one called Supply Management for the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply. Right, and so uh, this is going to be quite a deep question, but I went to... Um, I was in Copenhagen, we wrote this tech pledge thing about using tech for good, mm. effectively. Um, and one of the things that someone highlighted there is that uh, the erosion of freedom to speech is not an issue at the moment. The, the um, drowning out of speech is a problem. So this guy, was, his whole thesis was that if you want to, if you want to drown out what, what someone's got to say, you can just do... Um, 100,000 articles mm. that are about the same subject that just say all different things yeah. so people find it almost 
impossible to find out yeah. what someone's talking about. Is that something you've got an opinion on? Is oh, that something have you've... you read that book? And so you've been publicly shamed no. by John Ronson. I like love John Ronson. John great, Ronson great is like the absolute, like my, he's like the best journalist, one of my favourite mm. writers. Um, and he does a lot of kind of investigations. Um, and so you've been publicly shamed is about people who say something stupid on the internet, mm. um, on Twitter, and then get kind of monstered for it. And there are now businesses that will kind out. of swamp it out yeah. for you. So you can pay them to kind of uh, re, kind of retread your digital footprint, mm-hmm. I guess, and just put up so many other articles yeah. about you that that one stupid thing you did in like 2017 yeah. was just like kind of five minutes um, yeah. and then becomes your entire life so you can't get a job, you can't, that's the first thing people find about you, yeah. they'll get rid of that, which I think was just like a really interesting way of a solution. Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> um, I think with kind of technology and the footprints that we create via the stuff we put online, I think a lot of people, if you don't spend your entire like life online or thinking about online, I don't think people think that putting something out there is kind of out there forever. Yeah. And I think that's something, and so I'm not really answering a question, I've just gone off on like a no, terrible tangent. No, this is good, I like it. <laughs> um, but if you think about the kind of people entering the workplace now, yeah. if they've had um, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any other tools that exist that I don't know about because I'm actually too old mm-hmm. and I don't really understand how Snapchat works or TikTok is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that you'll be, you have that footprint yeah. and the stuff. So when I was like 13, 14, 15, and doing some really, really stupid things. Yeah. I'm just really glad that there's not a record of that. That's what we're going to spend the, on the next internet. 25 minutes talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I will be leaving. Um, you don't want to talk about what I got up to when I was like 17 year old in London. But that I, I don't have that, and you don't have that. Yeah. Whereas people coming into the workplace now, they will have that. Yeah. Because there is just kind of a record of their lives online, yeah. and I don't really think that's fair because I don't think we have allowed people the space to make mistakes because everybody I, makes lots of stupid decisions do you also, I also think on that subject there's there's a two sides to that as well around um, people being judgmental fuckers <laughs> as in sometimes I, and I suppose CVs would be the most extreme example of that and references which is sometimes I just think how far do I really want to go back per, in, in this person's career because Let's just, tell, let's just say you interview someone, you're told off the record they weren't great in that company even though they shouldn't have been doing it. I think it all starts fresh anyway and I'm looking at what the skills they've got. So I think there's, there's two sides to it, which is you definitely want to be the right for, forgotten, but also people judge so much, don't they? Like, what, 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 where's all the judgment coming from? <laughs> um, I think that there's, um, yeah, people do, people do like to be judgmental and I think it is kind of getting worse. I think if you think about kind of othering, like we like to other people. I've never it, heard of this. Oh, what is this? Until I did an English degree. <laughs> um, so uh, the concept that people like to get into into groups of people that are similar to that similar to them, right. and then other the people who are not similar, because it actually brings ah. the group closer together. So they say other people are like this. yeah. So um, yeah. So this kind of othering of certain yeah. yeah you know they're not the same as us because they come from a different background Got ya. or they're a different race yeah. or they've not worked in this sector before. Therefore, yeah. they are different, or you get it within organisations yeah. where people kind of turn inwards, yeah. and that actually creates quite strong group dynamics. Yeah. But you're kind of othering, and people always look for another. They want something to kind of react against. Yeah. 
Got it. Um, I like it. It's quite. I've learned. Yeah. I've learned something already. Good. That is literally all I am here for. <laughs> so we've got. We've done some. Um, we've gone really deep there with freedom of speech and othering. But I've got some really um, crap-free questions for you as well. Okay. And this is really tough for you. I don't. I don't think you'll. I think I know what you would say, but it's going to be. And I'm asking you really binary questions. Mm. But if you had to pick, and and it it was you had a day relaxing doing this, would would you write or would you read? So I don't write. For, so if I say I don't write for pleasure, if, yeah. that doesn't mean I don't find writing pleasurable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I write for income. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good at it. Therefore, I want to get paid for it. Mm-hmm. So I either write because I make it part of my job. Yeah. So therefore, you know, I'm writing to get. To, to put my ideas out there to structure my thoughts and make sense of the world and like you meeting lots of interesting people yeah. to get all that stuff down onto paper or a digital screen um, but I also do it to make money yeah. you know so I think if somebody's if, you, if somebody's good enough to ask them to do something they're good enough to pay for it yeah. you know so I read for pleasure read for pleasure yeah uh, if you again it's on the relaxing thing and I'm not going to let you um, explain any of these because okay. I want to get into your career more okay. um, yoga or, or vino yoga yoga uh, York or London uh, London cool I'm just checking that you went to did you go I to did university go to York, York? I'm like, York? why the hell are you bringing out York because <laughs> <laughs> I've been never even, LinkedIn. <laughs> never even been <laughs> um, cool okay so let's go into your career and I've been a bit loose by saying you get to hang out with a lot of HR people, yeah. but are HR people, is it, because HR people have got a lot to what they do, haven't they, from the mm. legal and the compliance side through to the leadership, etc. If you're, if you've been interviewing HR people or speaking to them, do you find it difficult to get them to open up to you? No, I think they're like the most open profession. <laughs> you think they're the most? Yeah, of other Brilliant. professions that I've worked with. And why, think, can you talk us through that? Yeah, I think they're um, naturally tend to be into sharing. Mm-hmm. I think they're naturally fans of community. I think this is a gross generalisation, but the ones that I know well, or I, or perhaps it, I often think that people who self-select to interact with me in the various jobs that I've had, it gives you a kind of false perception because the people who self-select are those that understand the value of the external world. So either they yeah. understand the value of talking to people to get their ideas out yeah. there, or they like to hear what other people are doing. Yeah. They just basically like to look beyond the boundaries of their organisation. So those, so saying that the group that I work with is probably, you know, it might not be the whole. But on the whole, I think that they are good with, good with people. And that is not because they're HR people, because actually in the other sectors that I've written about or worked kind of within and built communities within, if you get into any kind of leadership position, because I guess my kind of sweet spot is, yes, it's been working within kind of HR um, and the people profession, but it's also been working with leaders. Yeah. And any any leader of any function, they tend to get there because they're quite good at the people stuff. Yeah. Um, because they they can lead, because they can influence, because they tend to be able to interact on a kind of human to human basis. Yeah. Um, so. So. Yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought there. But on the whole, I find no, HR no. people are open and sharing, and that they when you're talking to them the way that I tend to the work that I tend to do they're not so focused on the compliance yeah definitely not compared to other sectors that I've yeah. worked with and as you're, you I don't know if you saw our research but we did 
we went through the whole happiness index universe and found that the unhappiest profession were HR professionals, mm. which was, we weren't looking for it. It was a shock to see it. Yeah. Um, and then it, we, you know, you end up down like a research rabbit hole. Yeah. Why were they unhappy? Why were they unhappy? Got deeper and deeper. And we also went into that. There is a, the real, as, as all the professions go, HR um, do have a lack of people moving into the CEO role. Mm. So what you're describing HR people seems to me to be a lot of the future skill set around their skills, mm. but, but many are not making it um, to CEO as opposed to um, COO or... Um, CFO. Yeah. And the other thing that the study that I read showed is that they have the second most suited skills mm. to it. So it's not a, a skills gap thing either. Mm. So it's COO number one, and then it's the, um, then it's the HR people, the, the people officers. Have you got any insight into why you think that is? If, you've, if you're if you in a unique position where you probably met more than, yeah, than most? Yeah, uh, I've got some thoughts on it. I think that it's a, potentially a selection issue. So do they want to do, they want to do it? I mean, does everybody want to be? Uh, well, that was a, I think there's not there's no, there's no real difference mm. on that level. Yeah. Um, in terms of want to. Yeah. Um, compared to any other role. Yeah. Um, in the piece that I saw. Yeah. So that was that was my first thought. Okay. Well, then I think there's definitely a gendered issue that HR is um, tends to be a more female profession. Yeah. And I say that it's very female um, in kind of the mid and lower level, and then the higher up you go, the men appear and take all the CHRO jobs. Um, often because they tend to come out of other functions and yeah. the CEO puts them in in charge of HR. So I think there is um, HR is seen as a female seat around yeah. kind of the ex-co and there are, you know, all sorts of other issues about women, structural issues about why women don't get into that kind of top job. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a really big issue um, what we kind of choose to value in organisations and that the people side is just not valued yeah. as much as the financial side. Um, and part of that is because we don't kind of we don't have correct mechanisms to understand it and so a lot of that is around kind of the reporting and the the measurement and how we kind of report on it and kind of how investors think about it and yeah. kind of how we see it through the kind of strategic lens of risk and opportunity rather than just seeing it as like oh nice fluffy people stuff and yeah. you know leadership anyone can do it yeah and that, um, that, that leads me into something that I said we've got to talk about which we spoke about on LinkedIn which was you had an article about um, how to measure culture and I asked you the question about why, why, because I get asked it all the time, so I thought you could say Mr. Just time. Just do your job for you. I do, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and you said something that I've just been absolutely blew me away and, and something that I've discussed with um, a couple of boards since is that, and correct me if I say your words wrong, that around how what you measure is obviously, is, is almost like symptomatic of how it, the importance you put on that measurement so if you were measuring happiness you'd think happiness was important if you were just measuring stock levels mm. or you're measuring attrition rates or whatever that you um think that that is 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 an indicator can you talk us through where that comment came from and if and because i also want to get into how your brain works so quickly as well <laughs> I don't know, it just came it just came out of nowhere. um no i guess the point i was trying to make is and i don't i'm going to caveat with saying that i don't necessarily think that the way that the system in which organisations are run is potentially the most kind of healthy and sustainable and that I'm quite a fan of ideas of kind of reshaping capitalism and kind of total stakeholder models yeah. and kind of B corporations and all that kind of stuff is something that I'm really interested in. Yeah. But if we think about kind of how organisations are valued and how they think about what is valued, then if something, if you think that something is valuable and important, then you tend to measure it. Yeah. 
and that's rightly or wrongly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess the point that I was making was that by kind of assigning the idea that we are going to measure and report on this, yeah. we are saying that it is important and worth measuring. Absolutely. And I think going back to one of the previous podcasts with Oren Bowman, when he talked about um, asking to meet team members in an interview process, maybe one of the questions in interview process is ask people what their KPIs are. <laughs> But for the business, what are you looking in your dashboard? Because there's going to be insight in there. Yeah. Or um, well, think about... So I think when we talk about culture, it's just really interesting because it's one of those words that we talk about so much now that it almost becomes a little bit meaningless. Mm. So like digital transformation is also meaningless. Yeah. It's just words that people say all the time to kind of sound, sound clever, but then when you kind of dig into what it means, like it's a little bit all over the place yeah and I think culture is a really interesting one like if I think about the kind of eight eight years or so that I've been writing about this area never have people spoken about culture more than in yeah. the past Why do you two years a well, part of it is regulation so yeah. if the corporate governance code is requiring you to talk about yeah. culture then suddenly <laughs> it's going to be of importance yeah um, part of it is because there have been like if you look back to kind of every kind of big corporate failing most of them are to do with leadership and culture yeah. issues and obviously loads and loads of examples of that and I think if you look at the kind of the shift I think the public accepts a lot more from organisations than it did before so people would expect more as employees and all of us expect more so if you look yeah. at things like kind of the Me Too movement or the climate crisis like we are looking to organisations to kind of take a lead in that and yeah. at the very base level not be too evil yeah. and I think that kind of expectation has really risen and so that you can draw a direct line to culture. I think the, the issue with cultures to do it is very kind of most granular form is a lot of people confuse it with engagement so they'll just be like oh well our engagement score is this yeah. but you could have really highly engaged people and quite a toxic culture. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. what I think is important and why this kind of potentially comes back to the kind of measurements and embedding stuff is that you could redo your values you've got your you do your values for your process where you talk to everybody around the organisation and you do loads of, you know, there are post-its everywhere. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. had a say yeah, and you've well, distilled it down to your life. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> post-its and like highlighters and everybody's had a yeah. say. Word, <laughs> that's the biggest fucking word cloud you've ever seen. <laughs> but when like, I promote I, this podcast, yeah. that's all I'm gonna write. <laughs> the but um, unless you then take that word cloud yeah. and translate it into your processes, yeah. then it hasn't stuck. Yeah. So unless you take your kind of very nebulous culture and values and then draw the line, how that connects into behaviours yeah. and then how that is done with your processes, yeah. and then you think kind of systemically of the whole system. So I always get surprised when people are like, oh, well, why are people behaving like this? And you're like, well, you're rewarding them over here yeah. for this. So yeah. obviously there's a link there. Um, so I guess the point I'm making is that you need to, and what I don't see enough organisations kind of thinking about, or people thinking about when they're talking about culture, yeah. is how do you trace that through to every totally. kind of link of the experience yeah. and every process? Because it's quite fashionable for HR people to be like, oh, we're just going to get rid of process. Yeah. You can't really get rid of process unless you have an incredibly mature organisation that doesn't need it. Yeah. But you need to have had it for a really long time yeah. to therefore not need it. And I say this is like the most unprocessed driven person ever who's a huge yeah. hypocrite and is like, oh, we need a process <laughs> that I can then ignore. <laughs> but I see the value of having it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just don't want to do it. 
I, I when I'm working, especially with CEOs that are trying to understand this, I use. Do you remember in like GCSE geography where you had the water system, and it's like the water goes through the rivers and then it yeah, goes I into do. the sea and it gets picks up into the clouds and mm. goes back into the mountains. Yeah. I, that's I use that for culture because mm. that's the the example, isn't it? Where you're just chucking a load of crap in the river and then you wonder why the sea yeah is polluted and then you wonder why the rain is acid rain and all this kind of stuff. And I, I know it's a really bad analogy, but I find that quite useful <laughs> for people that are watching if they're tr- trying to get to get you're it. Like, back. why are all the fish dead? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but also the other thing that we see is that people are just been measuring the wrong stuff for a long time. Mm. Because we get people phone us in the office and they go, oh my God, our employee engagement scores are the best ever. But everyone's leaving. It's mental health issues and there's burnout. And they've just been looking at stuff. And, it, and this is a, a question for yeah, you. Yeah, you can be like too engaged, can't you? You can be like so engaged at the expense of your own well-being. Yeah, but it's also what yeah. you're measuring because mm. the metrics might show someone's engaged, but it doesn't mm. actually mean they are. Because there's so much to a survey, bias, mm. all this kind of stuff that... Um, you just end up with scenarios with good scores where it's not reflecting how people feel. Mm. So let's move um, on a little bit um, into what you measure um, as a part of culture. So if, if, I said to, if, if I said to you, if you could think of all these HR people that you've met, mm. have you got um, ones that come into mind where you think, oh, do you know what, that person was always would say, like, this is a symptom of a good business or that is a symptom, or, mm. or, or do they all have the same opinions of it? I don't think everybody's got the same opinion. I think it's all very contextual. Yep. And I think the best people understand that stuff has to be contextual and you can't really do a copy and paste yep. approach for stuff. Um, but it's quite dangerous to come in somewhere and I'm just going to roll out my greatest hits. Yeah, which is weirdly, they, they do if employee engagement. Because yeah. they have, like, like, I don't know, 40 set questions or 50 questions that you think that you can just take from one company to another, mm. which is totally different. Um, but so you think the best HR people understand it? Yeah, I think they understand the importance of context. Um, I think they understand the importance of kind of looking upwards and outwards and engaging yeah. with kind of external sources and kind of bringing all of that information yeah. back to their organisation because I think realistically that's the only way you can see ahead and see round corners as best as you can. I mean, you really can't look yeah. <laughs> that far ahead. You're kind of trying to do that kind of five-year plan with, oh, my God, but you've got to be agile in your yeah. steps to that plan. It's like having another 2020 vision. It's 2020 now, isn't it? <laughs> I know. And who's it's everybody, like, big tick, we solved that. Yeah, someone yeah. wrote the other day, who's auditing those 2020 plans? <laughs> there really should have been a business idea. doing that, shouldn't it? Just go back and check them all. <laughs> there was a really good, actually, this is a total off-topic. I like, I like um, tangents. But there was a interesting thing I saw the other day that, um, you know, Tortoise Media, um, which is one of those slow news organisations, yeah. Um, Put out. Never heard of it again. Uh, you can look it up. Um, and they put out something called the Responsibility 100, yeah. where they went through the FTSE 100 um, with a load of metrics to kind of measure what the most responsible organisations are right. within the FTSE. So they looked yeah. at things like, you know, walking the talk, uh, yeah. gender diversity, climate change, um, uh, supply chain, like yeah. kind of loads of a suite of different metrics and kind of ranked the FTSE 100. And then yeah. the most, but the most interesting thing. But I thought actually, because I read an article a few weeks later about it that made the point, which is a total fair point, which is can you be a responsible business if you do everything the right way, but the actual core of your product is not responsible? So can you be a responsible tobacco company? 
Yeah, again, it, I mean, that come, I, there's a new phrase, isn't it? Like that purpose washing purpose or whatever. Washing. Is that what it's called? <laughs> that's what, that's what, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's what I've heard where people just kind of talking kind of like slogans and marketing statements yes. rather than kind of embedding it. But I think that's really interesting because yeah. maybe, you know, I don't smoke. I wouldn't argue that tobacco businesses are like changing the world for the better. Yeah. <laughs> but... If you know if they're all moving towards kind of vaping and stuff, can you? And they're doing everything in the most responsible way. Yeah. Are they a responsible business, or do we just say those businesses are not the same as like big oil companies? Yeah. Like if they are moving towards renewables, can we say, oh, you know, they're they're a responsible business, or is the core of the business model not yeah. responsible? And again, I suppose it comes back to your previous point when I was saying why is culture important now? It can be driven by um, people who put policy in, but ultimately it has to come back to the customer. Because mm. if the customer doesn't care about these things, eventually it doesn't matter. Yeah, totally. And I think as customers, it's a lot we've got to kind of take as our own personal responsibility. Yeah. Because ultimately, if you want, if you say you care about people being paid a living wage and being treated well, yeah. um, then you should pay higher prices. Yeah. And you should expect that you can't have something in 24 hours. Yeah. And it might take 48 hours. I always think that. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that about food. Mm. If you take like I don't know something that's got like loads of chemicals in it mm. versus something that hasn't, the something that hasn't is obviously going to cost more. But then, and I know this isn't a showing off, but I've got an iPhone here that's probably worth a lot of money. I'm gonna just uh, yeah. take that with me. <laughs> you know, it's much nicer than mine. <laughs> but people, I get it on a subscription, so I never even notice. It's how it works, isn't it? But I always, I always find that funny that people will uh, will argue about around pence when it comes to something they actually put in their body mm. but then Apple will suddenly just decide that this is how much it costs and people will go with it and I just I, I, there's a lot of psychology in it that I don't mm. understand but I just find that I'm, I'm a definitely an observer of human behaviour yeah. <laughs> well that's why HR is so interesting because people are just very unpredictable <laughs> yeah what's um, this is a quite a big and a, a tough question uh, to, re- to okay. remember as well but is there anything in terms of if you think back about you when you were working as you said like as as much as you could manage people when you were 19 mm. through to how you deal with people around you now yeah have you changed your approach at all oh um, yeah yourself? definitely and what would you say in what way um i think when i was younger um kind of in my early 20s to mid 20s i <laughs> gave a lot more of a shit about what people thought of me yeah but in a way that was negatively impacted on the work outcome yeah because you'd spend too much energy worrying about how is this going to come across and obviously you should worry about how stuff's going to come across yeah and you should try you know not to hurt people yeah and to you know but ultimately you're going to piss people off yeah like whatever you do you're not going to make everybody happy yeah so I think I wasted quite a lot of energy kind of worrying about that kind of stuff yeah earlier in my career or when managing people trying too hard to bend over backwards to make everybody so happy. So like people pleasing. Yeah, and not everybody's going to be happy all the time. Yeah. Like, and sometimes, you know, for the greater good, yeah. some, you might have to upset somebody here to, to lead to some like more positive change over here. Yeah. And one of my former bosses just gave me a bit of advice about, you know, you've got to toughen up a bit. Yeah. Um, and I think that really, really hit home. So I remember actually what we were, what it was about. Like yeah. uh, someone, mm-hmm. Not someone I managed, but someone I worked very closely with had just been complaining to me about, oh, I've got my workload is too much, I've got all this stuff, just it's too much, everything's too much, it's not fair, yeah. blah, 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 blah. 
And so I said to my boss, yeah, this person's just, I just feel they've got like too much on, maybe, oh, I don't really know how to help them. And she, she said, well, I'm going to go to their boss and I'm going to try and talk about it. And I was like, oh, no, no, don't do that. Because then she's going to, oh, she's going to, I'm going to feel like I've, I betrayed her trust. And, and I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know how to. And she was like, well, ultimately, if you want to make it better, then you kind of got to toughen up. So either I'm going to go over here and do that or I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. So which one's it going to be? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, and I think actually some of the best uh, compliments that people have given me in like kind of recent years that I never really thought about myself was that um, that oh you've got a bit of a you've got a bit of an edge there's like hardness yeah. to you and because I always kind of thought of myself as over emotional yeah. and kind of too feelings driven and too emotionally yeah. driven and too people pleasing. Go back a couple of podcasts. Yeah. There's an episode <laughs> from a neuroscientist that says there's no such thing as being too emotional. Um, but I'll let you listen to that one. <laughs> Well, now people, now I've had a few piece of positive feedback that like, it's yeah. nice that you've got a bit of an edge. It's yeah. nice that you're like, there's a little bit of a hardness yeah. to you. And I definitely wouldn't have thought that there was any hardness to me. Yeah. I was always very ambitious, but there was never any hardness to me a yeah. few years ago. And then you just have to go through stuff as a manager yeah. <laughs> that puts that in. And as a journalist, obviously, as well, because you're writing stuff that isn't going to please everybody. Yeah. And you kind of, especially with the absolute cesspit of internet comments. <laughs> Yeah, you just kind of have to get used to the fact that there's going to be people who are not going to like you and the decisions that you've made. Do you know what? Because uh, I've never been a journalist, I hadn't considered that. But obviously, everyone gets feedback constantly, don't they? <laughs> on whether Twitter and it's good, bad, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And we talk about the mental health impacts mm. of. Um, I think it's Caroline Flack who was yeah. on Love Island and all this kind of stuff. Does enough get discussed around journalists in terms of how they have to deal with it? Because you can be, especially if you're, say, a BBC journalist, you can be number one news tomorrow just because of the way you asked the question. Yeah, I think journalists in the kind of bubble, like there's, loads, I feel like I read a lot about it and there's a lot of talk about it. Yeah. And there's also a huge kind of gender split there where women get torn apart in a way that men don't. Yeah. And it does mean that, I mean, I personally do that I don't, so I do a lot of social media, but yeah. I wouldn't put, I always think before I tweet. Right. <laughs> and I often, I just don't think I want to wade into that. So I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. Or I don't think that opinion's going to go too, down too well. So I'd actually rather not put it out there. Yeah. Because I'm lucky and I think part of the fact that the kind of HR space and the people space on Twitter is such a kind of positive place most mm-hmm. of the time. That there's not Agreed. really that much negativity yeah. out there. But you occasionally do get some stuff. Like I'm a feminist, so sometimes you get people yeah. like misogynists, yeah. like tweeting at you, um, or people kind of sliding into your DMs. It's nice, inappropriate. Yeah, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Messaging. Um, so I mean, I choose. Like I would never. I don't engage with negativity. Yeah. On the internet, I can engage with like constructive. Yeah. Commentary and like I think arg- argument and disagreement is healthy. Yeah. But I think it's. I tend not to on Twitter because I think it's really challenging to have a kind of uh, coherent disagreement in whatever was it 280 characters yeah yeah um, so I tend to just not I wouldn't and I find I think I I don't think I have the personal resilience to be able to be the kind of a Laura Koonsberg or whatever I don't think I could cope with yeah. that because it's, it's crazy that you can get messages at any time of day can't you I've, I've had negative messages but I'm, at the end of the day we just talk about making work nice <laughs> really we're not extremists <laughs> But we had, we had the amount of stuff that people say to us and you just, and it, sometimes it could be at 11 o'clock at, bed, at night time and you just see it before you go to bed. I know. And no matter really how, upset, how yeah. resilient you are, you're just, 
that's the thought that's going through your head. Yeah, and that's partly on our the onus, I think, a bit on us to kind of feel like I'm going to put my phone away and yeah. I'm not going to have my notifications on. Yeah. But also, if it's your work, yeah, like you kind of need to have your notifications yeah. on if you want to engage with people positively. Yeah. You're yeah. going to have to take some of the shit as well. Yeah. Um, I think there's. Uh, I think this goes right full circle back to people thinking about the kind of footprint they're leave, leaving online and obviously a lot of it is anonymous yeah. although I don't think anything is really anonymous now you can always trace stuff back yeah. um, but kind of thinking my kind of very basic rules on social media when anyone asks me like oh should we have a policy I'm like what well, your policy should be if you wouldn't say it's somebody's face yeah. don't put it on the internet yeah. and if you wouldn't like be happy for your mum to read it yeah. don't put it on the internet and that yeah. should be that should be enough yeah, I always think that I know I probably shouldn't say this but you know when people say I'll oh, bring your true self to work well your thinking, true self is a dick yeah. Exactly. It's a real problem, yeah, isn't it's like, it? What if I'm pitching self? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just horrible. It's just some people that say some horrible things to people. Anyway, yeah. I think they probably are being authentic. Yeah, <laughs> that is a uh, that's a, a flaw in that theory. Yeah, my tip, my tip that I got from Stephen Bartlett was just reply once. I'll reply once to someone who says something negative and try and get my point across again then and if they're still just like then it's face to face I always say let's meet for a coffee and they never, they never do mm. no one's ever met me for a coffee that, that had a problem yeah it's funny isn't it mm. um, okay so we're moving um, towards wrap up but do you think um, you know you touched on B Corps mm. B Corps um, I never know whether it's B Corps or B Corps but I love what I it is I say B Corps like Peace Corps probably that's why right. I say like, uh, I think I'm cool yeah. saying it but I don't it's know if it's right or not it's Corps um Let's think, you, I know from meeting you last time you meet with FTSE 100 HR mm. professionals are you hearing anything from the bigger from the bigger companies about stuff like that or is it still the like we work with Vivo Barefoot I mean they're looking at it they they can do it at that size and the one thing that you said to me last time it's all very well people stand up saying oh we're great at culture and they've got 50 people mm. it's much harder when you've got 10,000 people are you hearing much from those companies? Yeah I think every, I think on mm. the whole I'm I'm an optimist and I think on the whole a lot of people are trying to do the right thing. I think that that often people are trying to do the right thing in a system that is fundamentally flawed and a little bit broken. So you can try and do a lot of the right things and the system kind of works against you. So kind of an example I can use from a couple of um, FTSE organisations, obviously I won't name, is that they've tried to, that they're trying to be more creative I don't mean creative like creative accounting that has a horrible (laughs) connotation (laughs) I mean I'm more innovative around the metrics they put in for exec pay so thinking about performance differently so people metrics and culture metrics and sustainability metrics and customer metrics and trying to kind of build a a kind of suite that is yeah just a little bit more holistic and then that is not going through shareholders are not voting that through so they you know there's a little bit of frustration there that you're trying to do what you quote unquote is the right thing in broadening out your metrics to value beyond the financial yeah but that's then not being voted through so you can't actually do it so as one someone said to me recently you're kind of between a rock and a hard place because you're being told by the system and by your shareholders that we want we want a long-term sustainable business but we also want, want short-term system. We want yeah. short-term financial value now, yeah. and often those two things are not quite compatible. Mm-hmm. So, if you're really trying to create a long-term business that's sustainable and doing good and responsible, then does that mean you might have to take some short-term hits? Yeah. Um, but if you're if you can't do that, like how are you ever going to yeah. get how are you ever going to get there? So, I think often the people 
are trying to do yeah. are trying to do the right thing Which I think, but the system is flawed I think where things like crowdfunding have really taken off hasn't mm. it because it allows individuals to invest in a company where they believe yeah. in the purpose as an example okay um, and because you say you're an optimist and this is a nice show <laughs> do you want to call out a couple of HR professionals that you think are doing a good job no no because <laughs> then the ones that I don't call out like, <laughs> why not good thinking good thinking I, like. um, I, I can talk very generally yeah, you know, like, I, love, I love all of my HR directors yeah. equally some people that are doing some cool stuff without naming um, them and you can give them a um, what is that um, film where uh, I can't remember she's a celebrity and she's dating Hugh Grant and she always um, gives a uh, she gives a, a fake name <laughs> fake you can name. give them all fake names <laughs> I think it's Notting Hill isn't it yeah, Notting Hill <laughs> um, no I'm not going to call out anybody individually no no but is there any um, and I'm not, I'm not being suddenly become a journalist and pressing mm. you for names <laughs> but um, and is there anything where you've where you spoke to someone recently and you think oh, do you know what that's really great what you're doing without talking about the company or whatever, the subject area. Yeah, I think like some of the most... So I've been having some really interesting conversations lately because we've been scoping some work we're going to kick off around the future of the people profession. So that's kind of given me a licence to go out and just have a lot of quite general chats with um, HRDs about where we should, like, kind of... Yeah, where's the profession going and where's there room for change? And some of the stuff, I think there's been two things that have stuck with me that I'm now claiming as my own yeah. <laughs> in conversations with that. So one of them has been um, a really fab lady that I was chatting to about technology and technology for good and thinking about HR's role as a kind of a ethical challenger yeah. when it comes to kind of automation and the example that she gave that I hadn't really thought about is that a lot of jobs that are going to be automated are admin jobs and admin jobs are, tend to be kind of mainly female. Yeah. So if you're going to suddenly automate a load of jobs, are you going to be putting a load of women out of work? And how's that going to kind of skew your organisation? Yeah. And also, if you're an organisation that is very highly embedded in a community, so if you're one of the only large employers in a community, do you really... I mean, I think there's a moral responsibility mm-hmm. to think about putting people out of work. Yeah. And the answer still might be that you're going to put a load of people out of work because you've considered... And that really is the best option in terms of giving the people who are still there yeah. a sustainable organisation and kind of creating more growth down the line. Yeah. But I think you need to think about how you're going to help those people yeah. kind of reskill um, and not become unemployable. Yeah. So I think that kind of moral questioning bit has been really interesting. That's really and then the other know. one that I remember was kind of stuck with me was somebody who said to me that he reflects... Because if you think about a continuum kind of when the CIPD started it was the Welfare Workers Institution or something like that so that's very kind of welfare focused and then you got to this point where HR became less and less about welfare and more and more about like being commercial Mm -hmm. and I feel now that maybe we're going back a little bit to like somewhere in the middle and one of the HR directors that I spoke to said to me he's like when I look back on my career I think of some decisions I made kind of 15 20 years ago that I when I was trying to be quote unquote commercial yeah. and I cringe yeah. and if I was making those decisions now I would have yeah. done something really different yeah. because I would have thought a lot more about being human yeah and love that so I think that kind of human centeredness <laughs> yeah there's a plug there's a plug for your <laughs> podcast title um, yeah that kind that, those, those two things I love that um, worst two HR directors you work with <laughs> no comment <laughs> That's what I might get you on that one. Um, cool. Oh, no. We are running out of time, but I need to give you an extra minute because you said, I said in the opening, before we go into the final bit, you said, 
I said, I don't think I've met someone whose brain works so fast. Oh, oh, and you said yeah. writing is your way. Oh, you yeah. Know, you made a link. What's that before? So, so for me, writing is a way of structuring my thoughts. So because my brain works quite fast, like my thoughts are all yeah. over the place. So I need to, the only way I can structure them a lot of the time is to write them down. So yeah. if I have a lot of meetings or talking about a lot of things, then I'll probably be like, right, I need to write a blog or something. Yeah. Um, and I need to kind of structure what I've heard into a coherent argument for me. Brilliant. That makes sense for Love me. Um, and you could then say, why do you publish it, Katie? And that's because I've got a massive ego. And I'm addicted <laughs> to the dopamine hits and the likes and the shares. <laughs> but the other thing is um, that if you kind of are into positive psychology and yeah. the kind of concepts of flow, I realized recently that writing is the only thing that gets me in flow. Right. So without that, I don't really have the space to be quiet. Yeah. So I'm out, I do a lot of external things, I do a lot of events, I, I speak, I chat to people, I, you know, I'm all over the place. Yeah. So for me, I need that space to be quiet because that's when my brain, the subconscious kind of starts working. Wow. And, you know, hours, hours become minutes, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff. I, my brain doesn't work as fast as yours, but I have the same, as soon as you said that, that's exactly how I feel about writing. Mm. Um, right, into the summary. Okay. Um, Biggest low in your career, so lowest moment in your career. Lowest moment in my career. Um, so there was a mo- there was <laughs> there was a point on uh, on HR magazine that due to various uh, staffing issues, I was made editor with a staff of zero. Uh, <laughs> so I had to do the whole magazine pretty much by myself wow. for three months. Uh, aside from having the help of my wonderful publisher boss, Sean Harrington. Shout out to Sean, who I love and is amazing. You did uh, shout, I out shout out to I shout out somebody, <laughs> but she's like my boss. Was my boss. Um, and I developed like this <laughs> terrible twitch in my right eye. <laughs> Just through stress. Um, there wasn't like a super low because it was still, I was kind of loving, you know, you love the work. Yeah. But in terms of kind of balance, no balance. Yeah. Um, highest moment in your career? Um, I feel like you're going to say the same thing. Same thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Highest moment in my career. I think the best kind of times in my career, I'm going to kind of generalise, and because there's a few kind of bits. That, it's when you feel like you're totally member of a team that is absolutely top of the game, yeah. and you're firing on all cylinders, and you're just producing something kind of really, really fantastic, and the people are really responding to it. Yeah. And I've had that in a few jobs, but just kind of when everybody's working together and it's like this really, really well-oiled yeah. machine. So it's a feeling um, for you yeah. when you feel that. Mm. Um, so, Katie Jacobs, I'm, I shouldn't be saying this, but I reckon this is the most fun I've had of all my guests on the podcast. I bet you say that to check, all check, the guests you can check, on your podcast. You can check all the other ones. <laughs> the first time I've said it, it's been so much fun. And we've gone over, we've gone well over. Um, Sorry. So I'm going to give you the last word because I've, just, I've learned so much and it's been so much fun. Um, if you could just close by sharing your biggest learning in your career. Biggest learning in my career. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so I think I'm actually going to go back to that one about being a little bit, a little bit tough. Um, and I genuinely think that has given me one of the kind of the biggest kicks up the arse to think about. You know, you can never please everybody, but you know, you should still produce something fantastic, and you should still kind of get consultation from everybody, and you can still listen. And I think there's ways. To listen to make people feel valued, but the you know the sweet spot is making everybody feel valued without not necessarily giving them what they what they say that they want. And you just need to kind of bring people with you. So I guess that's probably been my my biggest learning. 
Perfect end. Thank you. Thank you.